title of today's sermon is Identity Confusion. It's taken from Matthew 13, 54 through 14, verse 12. This is a different question, is people who are Christian are asking, why for Jews is Jesus not the Messiah? Yeah, um, you know, again, excellent question. Uh, the question can logically be asked. In fact, uh, I'm sure you know this, uh, the very early Christians uh, did regard themselves as Jews. Jesus himself, of course, regarded himself as Jews, and the, uh, many of the apostles, in fact, were Jews. Mm -hmm. And they considered themselves uh, Jewish. In fact, Peter himself... Uh, differed with Paul, and Peter took the position that uh, a follower of Jesus should practice circumcision and keep kosher and keep the Shabbat because they were Jewish. So the question, and of course we have Hebrew Christians this very day, the question is, well, why can't I be a religious Jew, believe in the Torah, and still say that Jesus is the uh, Messiah? Exactly, that's what so they want to know. I, I would say that uh, Judaism has three fundamental issues with Christian theology. Uh, issue number one, which does not go to the messianic aspect of Jesus, but to the divinity and the trinity and the uh, Holy uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, our problem would be that we believe that God uh, has never and will never assume a, a human form. And once you deal with the, uh, the reification or the corporalization of the deity, you are violating a tenet of God to being infinite and non-material. Now that, that of course goes to the divinity and that was a later development in Christianity. In terms of the messianic vision, uh, because let's say I say, well I don't believe that Jesus is God or Son of God, but let him be the Messiah, which we do believe in. So I would say there are two points. Point number one is that classical Jewish uh, literature does not accept the notion of a second coming. And that is once the Messiah reveals himself, he will accomplish a designated mission of getting the Jews back to Israel, rebuilding the temple, and hopefully thank, uh, establishing world's peace. Now, Jesus, of course, was uh, crucified. Jesus was murdered before he completed any of those things. And because of that, uh, Christianity developed the idea of a second coming, that uh, Jesus will come back and complete the mission. Uh, as I say, as far as uh, normative Jewish theology is concerned, when the Messiah comes, he's going to get the job done and he's not going to die and then come back. That is point number one. Point number two, which is actually a more important point, is, and again, I, I, I'm not going to get into the debate whether Jesus said it or, or the apostles or later people said it, but the notion that of the New Testament, the notion that God has abrogated his covenant with Israel and that God has replaced the Sinaitic revelation with uh, justification by faith, which is really Paul's innovation. Paul created the idea that one gets redemption not by works, but by faith. That's called justification by faith. That is a theological postulate that is absolutely inconsistent with the eternity of the Torah and the divinity of the Torah. Now again, I, I understand one could make the argument that that's not Jesus's argument. In fact, there are passages where he says, I'm not going to abrogate a single letter of the Torah. And yet, even within the Christian Bible, there are narratives in which he implies that certain mitzvot are no longer binding, and certainly Paul took the position that none of the mitzvot are binding. And uh, that is a postulate we cannot accept, because as Maimonides writes in his Articles of Faith, even the Messiah will not abrogate or replace the Torah. And that's our problem with Christian theology. Bad preaching, he never got to point three. Didn't have to though, did he?
Why can't Jesus be the Messiah for Jews? Let's bow in a word of prayer and ask God to guide and direct us into our study this morning of the book of Matthew. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. And no matter how man might misunderstand it or distort it, Lord, we know the truth. That Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who came to be king of Israel and rejected by his own people, he turned to the Gentiles. Help us, Father, as the church to reach out to the Jew first with the gospel message. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to their thinking and their ways, Lord, in order to reach them with the truth. Guide and direct us, Father, into a right understanding of your word, we would ask, through the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. I bet you've asked that question before. Why don't Jews believe in the Messiah? Most of you probably have never received a satisfactory answer. I looked on the internet and found this video, and I thought it would be helpful. I also found another Orthodox Jewish website that attempted to answer the question for an interested Christian woman. She wrote, I know this sounds silly, but I'm asking about the Jewish faith. And who do you say Jesus was? Was he just an ordinary man, a prophet, or a rebel who was causing trouble? Well, the website gave a long answer, and I'm going to condense it for you just a bit. The editor responded, Your question isn't silly at all. Our expert receives this question from Christians quite a bit who want a better understanding of the Jewish perspective on Jesus. The short answer is this, he writes, Judaism does not consider Jesus to be a prophet, the Messiah, or the Son of God. The way Jews have addressed the question of Jesus historically has been influenced by the social and political context in which they themselves lived. Since the Jews have been the subject of Christian persecution under their governments, the tenor of their experience has colored the way Jewish communities have thought of Jesus and the church. For example, during the Middle Ages, European Jews suffered great persecution they responded with a series of mythical pamphlets which derided the life story of Jesus. These pamphlets were widely circulated circulated within the Jewish community. However, today most Jews and Christians live in relative harmony. So the attitude of Jews about Jesus is one of respect but not acceptance. We believe that Jesus was definitely a historical figure, a charismatic community leader who was deeply troubled by what he saw as the failures of his society. He spoke eloquently about those failures and he hoped for change. However, there is no one Jewish view about Jesus of Nazareth. Some regard Jesus as a wise rabbi, others as a heretic, while some find his teaching and his claims to be highly offensive. Yet most Jews really don't know much about Jesus or the New Testament. Jews definitely, however, draw the line at calling Jesus a prophet or the Messiah. That's just a line too far. Now, psychologists diagnose the person who fails to understand themselves or others in this world as suffering some somewhat of a condition called identity confusion or role confusion. Let me suggest to you this morning, tongue-in-cheek, that the Jewish people suffer from role confusion 
about the identity of Jesus and their own identity. I'd like to demonstrate that this morning from the text that we look at today. I will also explore the idea that many in Jesus' day suffered with identity confusion about themselves and Jesus. Well, today we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 13 and enter into Matthew chapter 14. So we're moving from the kingdom parables that Jesus taught to his disciples and to the crowds for specific purposes that I've mentioned in the past, onto Matthew 14, which is a transition in Matthew's argument. You'll recall that he's writing his Jewish brethren, asserting that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that is the Messiah King. And as you know, the Lord's disciples thought of Jesus' identity in the terms of his kingship, his earthly kingship. They were convinced that the Davidic kingdom was about to be ushered in. And this began to be confused for them when Jesus told them again and again that he would be heading to Jerusalem to die on a cross. This perplexed them greatly. This misidentification of Jesus and his role by the nation of Israel has reverberating consequences down to the day in which we live, as you can see by the video that I just showed you. Jews will never accept Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah King. Their rejection of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus by the nation of Israel as the King was complete at this time in which we look. But those consequences continue today. The circle, as they say, has now been completed. You'll recall that the last time we were together, Jesus and his disciples were at Peter's house in Capernaum. Jesus had just finished teaching the crowds and his disciples the seven or six, six or seven kingdom parables. And as you can see on the map behind me, Capernaum sits on the shore of the Sea of Galilee at the north, and Nazareth is to the west and south to uh, uh, below the Sea of Galilee on its way to the Mediterranean. It's about a two-mile walk, two days walk, 40 miles. Jesus decides that it's time for him and his entourage to make their way to Nazareth where he grew up. Nazareth was a mid-sized village of around 2,000 inhabitants at this time. Jesus and his entourage arrived just before the Sabbath day. So he made his way to the local synagogue where he was recognized by the ruler of the synagogue and he was asked to speak. Jesus does so and also using his divine powers he heals some of the sick people who are outside the synagogue. So with that as my introduction, would you please turn with me now to Matthew chapter 13, where we pick up with verse 54. If you need to use a pew Bible, you can find this text on page 973. Page 973. Once again, we are hearing Jesus being rejected by all Jews. Jesus is rejected by all of Israel save a small remnant of believers. In verse 54, 
we read that Jesus came to his hometown and began teaching in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where? Where did this man get the wisdom and these miraculous powers from? This is the last time. This is the very last time Jesus will enter into a synagogue in order to worship his father. The reason for that is really pretty simple. When Israel rejects him, he's no longer welcome to worship the father amongst them. And if he does so, he will be putting himself in great danger. But for the time being, he's back at home in Nazareth, where he grew up, and he does what anybody would do when they return home. He goes to the place that he first worshipped the Lord, his Heavenly Father, in. I'm quite sure that Jesus also visited with family and friends while he was in Nazareth. However, this verse shows us that there was a level of animosity in Nazareth, his hometown, when we read that he went to their synagogue. It's quite ironic, isn't it? That the Lord who created the people in Nazareth was not welcomed in the place designated to worship himself and his father. It was, after all, his synagogue and not theirs. The truth is, not much has changed even in churches today. I know of many churches where Jesus Christ is really not welcomed. You'll recall that early on in his Galilean ministry, Jesus, in Luke 4, visited his hometown. This is several months or a year year later. Jesus was asked at that time to speak, and he chose to read from from the chapter from Isaiah 61. That text speaks of the coming Messiah, of whom Jesus asserts he is now the one who has fulfilled that text. He claimed his hometown in Nazareth that he was the Messiah. And the result was they tried to kill him. They took him to the above seen prepotus in Nazareth and they tried to throw him off it down into the Jezreel Valley. So now, once again, a specific time later, months or years later, he now returns and the people are no longer trying to kill him necessarily, but they are still asking the same questions that perplexed them then. That question is, who is he? That really doesn't identify a person for you, does it? They've seen him in action. They've heard his powerful teaching. They've seen his miraculous powers demonstrated as he healed people. They've heard his claim to be the long-awaited Messiah. But now in this verse, we see that his hometown rejects him outright. Why do they reject him? Well, probably because he was so familiar. They watched him grow up. He had his beginnings in Nazareth. But now he's come to be the talk of the nation of Israel. And they responded with amazement at his works and his teaching. They'd never seen a man like this, yet he grew up amongst them. Jesus possessed, according to the text, wisdom and power, and they were overwhelmed by this, but they would not recognize him for who he really was. There was identity confusion, if you will, about his person. It's important to recognize that throughout all of the Gospels, Jesus' ability to perform miraculous acts was never questioned. 
But what was questioned was the source of his powers. Clearly, he was like no man that they had ever seen before. And so they asked the natural question. Where did he get his powers from? Were they from God or was it as the Pharisees had claimed in the previous chapters that Jesus was empowered by the evil one? This goes to great lengths to explain to us what official Judaism thought about Jesus. The religious elites in chapters 9, 12, and again in 21, will claim that Jesus is empowered by Satan. They had no other way to explain what Jesus did or how he taught. The fact is, if they had taken his powers and his teaching at face value, they would have had to concede that he was the fulfillment of the Messiah. He was the promised king. But they could never do that. They could never do that, for it would have ended their reign of terror over the people of Israel. So they just kept on accusing him of colluding with the Russians. Wait a second. I mean the evil one. Notice their dig at Jesus in verse 55. His neighbors, wondering where his powers came from, look at one another and they ask the question, isn't this the carpenter's son? We all know him, right? He's Joseph's kid. Isn't that his mother Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And aren't those his sisters who are with us? Where did this man get all of these things from? There it is. The question of his identity, the confusion over who he is when confronted by the evidence. He's just a carpenter's kid. He's lived amongst us for these 29 years. How could he possibly be doing this miraculous stuff? This, this confounded them. Yet they continued to refuse in the light of all of this clear evidence who he really was. To them, he was just the carpenter's kid who lived on Pacific Avenue. It's the same today. I've seen the bumper stickers on the cars as they pass by me at 80 miles an hour on the expressway. Jesus was a dead Jewish carpenter. You ever seen that one? You see, nothing's the change. Nothing's changed. His hometown rejected him. But amazingly, so did his own family. As we will see, his whole extended family, as we've seen, his whole extended family was there watching him. They were at the synagogue. His mother Mary was there. His four half-brothers and a number of his half-sisters were there. His siblings, as you know, had to have been born after him because he was born first 30 years before. And that was followed, obviously, by Joseph and Mary's sons and daughters. Here we have the name of four of the sons. Uh, Two of them we know well. James and Jude would later write two of the epistles found in the New Testament. Both would actually play prominent roles in the early church in Jerusalem, but they would not be saved until after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. James, in fact, would go on to be one of the first martyrs of the church. Unfortunately, we have no more information given to us in the New Testament about the rest of Jesus' siblings. But according to this text, his hometown found Jesus to be just a lonely carpenter's son from Hicksville. He could never be the Messiah, therefore. 
who could come and defeat the great enemy, Rome, on horseback, leading his troops in victory. However, how could they then explain all of this stuff which they were seeing with their own eyes? They couldn't. So their response, according to verse 57, is to become angry. They took offense at him, says the text. They took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor in his own hometown and in his own household. You've heard that familiar phrase today, familiarity breeds contempt. This verse explains why they took offense at him. They knew him too well. They were familiar with him. He couldn't be the Messiah. He must be a liar or a lunatic, but he could never be Lord. By the way, that Greek word that's interpreted as offense is the same word Matthew uses throughout his book to describe those who took offense at Jesus. Truly, Jesus' offense was that he was a stumbling block to the Jews. They were offended because his claims did not meet their expectations. You see, they assumed what the Messiah would be according to their own desires rather than what Scripture said. Jesus responds to their wrong expectations by using a well-known proverb of the day. A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and his own house. Truth is, Jesus had been honored throughout Israel. He had taught like no one had taught. He healed people of their sicknesses. He then went home to his own, and what did he find Nothing but rejection. He's been rejected by the religious elites. Now he's been rejected by his hometown and his own family. And in verse 58, we see the results of that rejection. And Jesus did not do, did not do many miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. If his own friends, family, and neighbors wouldn't believe in him, what hope was there for the rest of the nation of Israel? As you see here, it was their own unbelief that put the kibosh on Jesus doing more miraculous things in his own hometown. Someone in my Sunday school class uh, questioned my understanding of Jesus' miracles. I offered that Jesus did miracles in order to validate his person, that he was the Messiah, that he was the King. The person who questioned me asked if it did not flow out of his character. Didn't Jesus do miracles because he loved people and had compassion on them? Well, that sounds all well and good. The problem with that, if you think that, is it just doesn't mesh with Scripture. You see, if that were true, that Jesus did his miracles out of love and compassion for people, which I suggest to you that he did not, then this verse shows him to be a hypocrite selfish, self-centered, and totally uncompassionate for people that have needs. You must understand this if you were to rightly understand the scriptures. If Jesus intentionally did not heal sick people in Nazareth, then he was a mean God, was he not? Just because they didn't believe he withheld his power to make them better? The truth negates all of that. 
Surely Jesus does love and compassion for everyone, has compassion for everyone, but he did miracles to show who he was. And guess what? They still rejected him. The Lord didn't do his mighty works to help people physically. Jesus didn't heal people to help them physically. Jesus did miracles to help people spiritually. This body we have is only for a short time. You can build it up. You can work out. You can be the strongest man on the planet like Arnold Schwarzenegger and still be a clod who has sex with people outside of marriage. Jesus came to show and validate who he was, that he was the Messiah King. That's why he did miracles. And yet, even his own family rejects him. The rejection of Christ is now complete. The circle has been finished. Just as the Apostle John said in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. There it is. Let me remind you that through chapters 8 through 12, the religious elites were the first one to reject him. The people who should have had the scriptures and known who he was, the Pharisees, the scribes and the Sadducees accused him of being empowered by Satan. Instead of welcoming him as the Son of God, they rejected him. Now Matthew moves his argument forward that Jesus is the Messiah, making this argument to Jews by using a flashback. Notice in verse 1 of the next chapter, he uses something that has already transpired to make a point. We read in chapter 14 and verse 1 that at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. This verse begins helpfully for us with a chronological marker. Matthew tells us that while this event was taking place in Nazareth, that Jesus was teaching there and healing people and being rejected, at that very time another event was taking place across the Dead Sea in what is now present-day Jordan, At that time, something was taking place that was very important. We we know that Jesus has just finished giving his kingdom parables to the crowd. He's walked to Nazareth, and something that was earth-shattering in Israel was taking place. For the first time, we see that governmental authorities are being used to thwart the kingdom message. Governmental authorities are being used to thwart the kingdom message. We need to be reminded here, as we study this text, who Herod was. He was a member of the Herod family. All Herod families were Edomites. You might not know what that means. An Edomite was a direct descendant of Esau who had had children with a Gentile. So they were half Jewish and half Jew. Half Jewish and half Gentile. The blood that ran through their veins was considered by all Jews, therefore, to be tainted. And yet, the Herod family had been installed as potentates in Israel. Herod the Great, the first of them, had been appointed by Rome as a vassal king over all of what they called the region Palestine. 
He, however, as you know, had been paid to play. He bought his position. That's how he got it. Herod the Great became the father of the extended Herod family. He was also the one who had the babies killed in Bethlehem. He tried to murder Jesus by having all those two years old and under killed because he thought of them as a threat to his throne. Well, Herod had four sons who, upon his terrible death, split the so-called region of Palestine into four distinct provinces. These, the, the title that was used for them was Tetrarch. All that means is four was divided into four regions. Each one was given command or uh, rule over one of those regions, hence a tetrarch. Each of Herod the Great's sons received one of these portions, and they ruled, at least specifically Antipas ruled, in the region that we're looking at, Galilee and Perea, from 4 B.C. through 39 A.D., for about 43 years. It was at that time, 39 A.D., that Rome deposed him and he was sent into exile in France. Herod Antipas was a drunken slob, depraved, debased, and weak when it came to women. He was just like his daddy. The, tree, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. And in fact, he was a pathological killer. In our text, we learn that he had John the Baptist murdered. Later on in Matthew, we see that he was a co-conspirator in the, conspirator in the, in the murder of Jesus. All of Herod the Great's sons were evil rulers who typify what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, in verse 2, we learn that Antipas heard about Jesus' miracles taking place in Galilee. And he said to his servants, as he's at Merkaras, which is in the region of Jordan, he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are at work in him, Jesus. There it is. Herod Antipas. He's either superstitious or he actually believes in the resurrection. I'm going with the first. What about you? He's got identity confusion just as well about Jesus. Antipas confuses Jesus with John the Baptist because John the Baptist, as we're going to learn in the the next verses, that he's had him murdered. But Antipas is somewhat, he's not a sociopath, he's just a pathological murderer. He is feeling somewhat guilty over having killed the prophet of God. And now... Just a short time after he's concluded that event under tragic circumstances for John, he hears about another prophet of God doing wonderful, miraculous things, and he fears that it's John, risen from the dead, coming to get him. So he's overflowing with all sorts of feelings, guilt, fear, and many others. Obviously, This reveals his great antipathy towards the works of God in Israel. He, on the other hand, seems to have great respect for John and Jesus. And still, on the other hand, he wants John dead. Now, we learn all of this from the text that we're going to be looking at and a few from other Gospels. For example, uh, we learn that John was killed by Antipas Herod, or Herod Antipas, 
but that he really didn't want him dead. It was by the will of his wife Herodias that he comes to his end. For example, in Mark chapter 6, we see that she was the one behind the throne, the power behind the throne who orchestrated it. When we read, beginning in verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod, that's Antipas, was afraid of John. Knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, Herod Antipas kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was just very perplexed. Identity confusion. But he used to enjoy listening to him. It seems that Antipas, uh, according to secular scholars like Josephus, would invite John up into his palace from the uh, cell that he had, and he would rant and rave about Antipas's personal sins. And for Antipas, this was pure entertainment. After all, he didn't have an iPad to stare at or Netflix to play. So to keep himself amused, he had John brought up who would preach to him about his so-called sins. This was a distraction for, for Antipas. We learn in Luke chapter 23, verse 8, that Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. This is later on. For he wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. You see here, He's got these mixed feelings, fear and grieving over what he did to John, but he really enjoyed all of the process of having John come up and entertain him. And now, Jesus, he's looking forward to seeing him so that he can continue the circus, if you will. A little entertainment. A little break in his day. A little break in the monotony of life. That being said, when the news arrives to him that Jesus is validating his person and uh, who he is, his claims through his miraculous works and his teaching, Antipas becomes worried. He becomes worried because he thinks this is the resurrection of John. As I previously noted, Matthew will explain Herod's identity confusion over Jesus by interrupting the narrative, as I said previously, with this flashback. Now we get it in verse 3. We learn of John's death. When Herod heard about John being when excuse me, when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison. You see, we're going backwards here in time, because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. You got that, right? Matthew inserts this to illustrate the attitude of powerful government entities towards Jesus in Israel. The Herod family had done everything in its collective power to stop Jesus from becoming their king. Herod had the babies, as I mentioned, in Bethlehem massacred. Herod caused Jesus' parents to flee to Egypt for safety. Now Herod Antipas has the messenger, the forerunner of God, the proclaimer of the kingdom, killed. This certainly represents the governmental objection and rejection of Christ as the king. Jesus would say later on that the motivation for this was clear. He who receives me, he who receives you, I should say, receives me. But the reverse is true. He who rejects you rejects me. So when Herod Antipas had John the Baptist killed, he was rejecting Jesus as the king. Over my years here at Lacey Chapel, I have not shied away from speaking truth to power. Not that any one powerful was listening. 
But I have not avoided telling the truth, God's truth, about those who govern over our nation. Frankly, truthfully, this has not endeared me to a lot of people. For their commitment to political party overrides their commitment to Jesus Christ and truth. You see, I believe the Lord cares about each and every one of the 60 million aborted babies that the Democrats have killed, massacred, pales in comparison to what Herod did. I believe the mighty God created every man, woman, and child to be what he created them to be, not some transformed thing into something no one can recognize, male or female. I believe that God created the institution of marriage between one man and one woman, despite what the other political party teaches. I believe that God made man to work and to till the ground, and that a man doesn't eat, he shouldn't work, not for the Democrats to give people money hand over fist and throw it down the toilet to the, to the now miraculous total of $23 trillion. Our government has turned the will of God upside down. This government that we live under attacks God by calling what is good evil and what is evil good. The government in my lifetime has labeled godly principles as null and void. Unfortunately, many in the so-called church have participated in this evil with great zeal. Most mainline churches expend all of their energy on liberal ideas and principles such as BDS. Maybe you've never heard of it. It stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions of Israel. I believe the Lord is spitting these churches out of his mouth as being lukewarm or ice cold. He hates compromise with the world system. Frankly, I tire of people suggesting to me that I preach on something else rather than preaching on their political party. My duty is to preach the whole counsel of God, and if that impacts who you vote for, so be it. My job is to preach on truth, not to the desires of the carnal Christians who might attend this body. The Christian life is not giving some sanctimonious nod to God one hour of the week. It's to live a whole life sanctified and holy unto the Lord. Think, if John the baptizer didn't have the courage to stand up against the governmental powers of his days, he would have lived a long and peaceful life, I'm sure, out in the desert eating honey and locusts. But he didn't. He stood up to power. He spoke the truth, and people didn't like it. John had been saying, according to verse 4, to Herod Antipas, the governmental authority under which he lived, it's not lawful for you to have her. You are in living in infidelity and in adultery, and the Lord is going to deal with you. You think Antipas liked that? I suggest he didn't. John was unafraid of the consequences for his public condemnation of Herod, and it would cost him greatly. It would cost him his very head. If you thought John was unpopular with Antipas, he was even more unpopular with Herodias. As you know, she was formerly the wife of Philip, Antipas's brother. Bo 
while in Rome, all of them had been together, and Herod Antipas hooked up, if you will, with Philip's wife. Nice, huh? The baptizer publicly accuses both of them of incest, adultery, and sin against God. And in fact, the law, Jewish law, called it a capital offense. But both Herodias and Antipas tried to cover up their sin. They divorced their mates, thought that would make it all better. Herodias divorced Philip, and Antipas divorced his wife, and then they got married. But according to Jewish law, such an immoral relationship could not be glossed over. Antipas broke the law by marrying his brother's wife, according to Luke, excuse me, according to Leviticus 18, verse 16, where the Lord said to Israel, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. So when John stood outside of Antipas' palace calling him an adulterer and a lawbreaker, and now doubt, quoting here from Leviticus, Herodias went over the edge. As he spoke, the Jewish people listened. They believed that John was completely right. They believed he was a prophet of God and that he spoke the truth. And they loved him for it. In verse 5, we learn that although Herod... Whoops, sorry about that. Although Herod... See, my lungs lungs are going to be good for after that surgery. You know? (sighs) Breathe deep, Scott, breathe deep. Although Herod wanted to put John to death, says the text, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. Antipas was afraid of the people. If he did anything, they might rise up and riot and cause a problem. Which if he got back to Rome, he'd be in deep doo-doo. The people loved John. They thought he was who he claimed to be in many ways. Now in verse 6, we read that Herodias whom I like to call that wicked wench, was not to be trifled with. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and, was, and Herod was pleased. Well, let me give you a quick overview of what takes place. Antipas is having his birthday party. He's invited his buddies over. Jews did not celebrate birthdays. That was a no-no. But Antipas, being half Gentile, thought it was okay. So he's having this separate birthday party with his buddies from the women when all of a sudden the door flings open and in comes Salome. And as you know, she dances before him. She's beautiful. She manipulates Antipas. For Herodias knows that he is driven by his flesh. And such a provocative dance would appeal to the puppet ruler. Herod couldn't believe his eyes. In his drunken state, he finds his own stepdaughter very appealing. His vindictive wife knew that this would happen. She had planned it all out. She had manipulated her daughter and now her husband into accomplishing her evil act. She was burning with anger at John for his public humiliation of her, and she made up this plan to get rid of him. And in verse 7, we read that she planned all of this out to send Salome in to dance before her husband. 
Her dance pleased Herod so much, says the text, that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. This was Herodias' plan all along. She knew her spineless, decadent husband was a fool and would fall for her plan. Having been prompted by her mother, says verse 8, Salome asked Herod Antipas what her mother really wanted and put her up to. She said to Herod, Give me here on a platter the head of John the baptizer. Well, Herod, being drunk as a skunk and now pleased with the dance, made a foolish promise to give her whatever she wanted, even up to half his kingdom. He was promising something that wasn't his to give. We learned that from another one of the gospel texts. He was promising to give her something that was not his liberty to give. But Salome asked for what her mom wanted instead of asking for what she could have wanted. She could have said, hey, I'll take a uh, 65-inch flat-screen TV, right? Or how about one of a new Maserati or a, a humpback camel? Instead, she asked for what her mother wants. I want the baptizer's head brought right here and placed on a platter before me. And I want it now. Antipas sobered up real quick. He sobered up real quick and took stock of the sticky sticky situation he'd gotten himself in. Verse 9 tells us, Although he was grieved, uh uh-oh, what have I done? He looked around at all the people who were there, all his buddies, his golfing buddies, his bowling buddies, his shooting buddies, and he thought to himself, because of my oath and because of my dinner, yes, I'd better do this. Antipas did not want to kill John. It would cause problems for him with the people and maybe with Rome. But now he had all of these witnesses surrounding him as to what he had said the oath that he had made, the promise that he had given to her. It's ironic to me that Antipas was more worried about the prestige in front of a few friends than in taking the life of a human being. But he feared, like the fool he was, that he would lose his kingship if he didn't follow through. One thing we can commend Herod for is that his conscience wasn't completely dead because... He sent his men down to the prison, and according to verse 10, he had John dispatched in the most humane way at the time. He had him beheaded in prison. Just like, however, his father, Herod the Great, his physical father, Herod Antipas was more like his spiritual father. You know who that is. The father of all liars and murderers. One thing we can say with certainty is that the baptizer's ministry had come to an end. It was now finished. John's execution totally violated Jewish law, just like the execution of Jesus would totally violate Jewish law. But when you're a potentate, who cares about the law? You can do whatever you want. You can sign with executive orders no matter what you want to do. If you have a pen and a phone, you can accomplish whatever you want to do. It was time for John to die. And even though this upset his sensibilities about how things might go for him, he still did it. He had John beheaded. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Once the dirty deed had been done, had been done, John's severed head, according to verse 11, was brought up on a platter and given to the girl. Notice the girl that we know from the Greek language that she's underneath 15 years of age. She's a teenager. She had it brought to her mommy. Here we see who the real perp is. It's Herodias. She uses her teenage daughter to bring John's ugly head up to her mom. Mama, look what I've got for you. It's John the baptizer. Salome presents his bloody head dripping all over the platter, and Herodias' joy has been made complete. She can't contain it. Her tormentor, the man of God, was no more. You see, it was Herodias' trickery, much like Eve's trickery in the garden, that brought man down to this lowly place. Herodias had won, at least in her mind, and she'd received her prize, a severed head. Now in verse 12, we find the conclusion to this text in which we are told that John's disciples came to the prison in modern-day Jordan on the other side of the Dead Sea, and they took away John's body and they buried it and they went and they reported all that had happened to Jesus. Again, it's somewhat commendable that Antipas allows John's disciples to take away his body instead of throwing it into a garbage dump. They were able to give it a proper Jewish burial. The question is, what does all of this mean to you and me today? This confirms to us, despite what others say, that Jesus had made an offer to Israel to be their king, and they had rejected him completely. The nation of Israel, represented by the the elites of religion, had rejected him. His hometown rejected him. His own family rejected him. The governmental authorities rejected him. If you reject my messenger, you reject me. It is noteworthy to me that Herod Antipas never sought out godly counsel. He never called upon John, whom he knew to be a prophet of God, for any counsel. He could have asked him how to proceed, how to make himself right with God. But he was not a man who was going to seek the forgiveness of God for his many sins because he didn't care about them. He was a man who used governmental powers to get what he wanted. Nothing has changed today. We have those empowered over us who persecute homeschoolers for simply wanting to educate their children in the most godly of manners. We have the IRS persecuting and targeting conservative Christians because they believe in promoting godliness in our culture. We have those who have the temerity to say that Jesus is the answer to every person's problem and a loving God being penalized by our government for it. Baking a cake becomes a crime. Flower, making flowers for people becomes penalized by the government. The court system is so stacked against our faith that it constantly rules to dishonor even the memories of those who have served the nation dying for it because their memorial has a cross over it. Anyone who desires to defend our God and the given freedoms we've received from him has now become an enemy of the state. Matthew shows us that both John and Jesus were enemies of the state 
They were interconnected at the hip. John began the ministry of the king at the coming out party as the forerunner, and Jesus ended the ministry at the cross. Both men were interconnected. Both men affected each one another directly. Both men were rejected by Israel and killed. The same is happening in the United States today. If one preaches the gospel that Jesus Christ is the only answer, you will be rejected. We must give kudos to John the baptizer. Just like the Old Testament prophets who were sawn in half or boiled in oil, John was unafraid to stand up against the governmental authorities of his day. Truth is, he paid a heavy price. He lost his head. Our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles did the exact same thing, dying in very similar manners. But John was confident. John was assured that God had called him, that he had assigned this task to him to stand up for truth, to proclaim there's a new king in town, even though it meant rejection and death. How could he preach the gospel of the kingdom? How could he preach the truth while not holding a bankrupt king, Herod, accountable for his moral transgressions against God? So it is today. All preachers are called to the same task. We're called to preach the gospel of grace and to confront wickedness wherever we find it, even in high places. Our father is not a liar nor a murderer. We are not to compromise with those who will kill babies. We are not to compromise those who will turn the freedoms of our God into licentiousness or remove them. When I stand before the Lord, I pray that he will not say to me, you wicked servant, get away from me. You compromised with the world system in order to gain fame and fortune in the church. Our task as believers and mine as a pastor is called to live a holy life and to stand against the evils of our day no matter what occurs. Do you recall the text from the book of Acts? When the Apostles were commanded by the governmental authorities to stop preaching Jesus. Do you remember? They, they were then beaten, and then they were released, fortunately. But they were told to cease and desist in their activities. And how did the apostles respond to such governmental abuse? Acts 4 tells us, After calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. There it is. We are to count persecution, not as something to be avoided, but something to suffer as our Lord Jesus suffered. We are to rejoice, and most of all, we are to keep on preaching and teaching. Notice, from house to house, in the temple and from house to house, we are to preach. That's the model that we should follow in our lives today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this admonition from Scripture. We thank you for the life of John the baptizer. 
willing to follow you in the most difficult of times, to even give up his life. Help us, Father, not to seek out suffering or persecution, but to be a voice crying in the wilderness, a voice proclaiming truth, that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He is the king come to redeem Israel. And when they rejected him, he turned to us to give us the offer of the free gift of eternal life for trusting in him and him alone. Help us to proclaim that message from house to house despite what we might run into. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.